All right. This morning, we are going to launch our sermon series through the book of Romans, chapters 6, 7, and 8. Um, this is just a teaser for next week. I'm not going to go over the Tupperware. We're going to go ahead and, and kind of present this next week. For some of you, this is old or familiar, I should say. For some of you, this will be new. You're saying, why is God on a Tupperware box? Well, we'll go over that next week, okay? Um, everybody say, new you. Let's say it again. New you. This morning, we're beginning a sermon series through three chapters that transformed and changed my life, and three chapters that can be absolutely transformative in the life of a Christian. There are sermon series that are born out of uh, my experience as a pastor, and one of the things that I do is counseling. And here's what I hear. A counsel, I'll be counseling a married couple, and, 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 and essentially the conversation will get to this point where one person says, I don't know if my spouse will ever change. And someone said that the single belief that's most toxic to a relationship is the belief that the other person is incapable of changing. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? If you're in a relationship with somebody where you go, that person's just never going to change. It's toxic to that relationship. It's the essence of hope to be able to go, that person can change. The interesting thing is, I see that dynamic in our relationship with God. But here's how that works. It is absolutely critical for us to believe that we can change. That we can be different. Because if we don't think we can change, if we don't think we can be different, it's toxic to this relationship with God. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? It is critical. It's the essence of hope for you and I in this relationship with God, in this Christian life to go, I can change. I can be different. I can overcome these besetting sins and addictions and things in my life. I can be the person that God calls me to be. It is imperative. The challenge is we live in a culture where truth is oftentimes overridden by our feelings and our experiences. Truth is often overridden by our feelings and our experiences. And the problem with that is if you, if you interpret reality through how you feel, truth gets lost and we get majorly screwed up. Many of us interpret, unfortunately, our relationship with God based on how we feel. And the problem with feeling, you've heard me say this before, is that our feelings oftentimes contradict. Yes? Let me show you an example. And you've heard me say this before, right? We feel, I want to be loved. But I want to be totally independent. I want to be loved. I want to be cared for. I want to be unconditional love. And then the other side of me that says, I want to be totally free. Don't fess me in. Those two things are strong, powerful feelings. Can't go with this. Here's another one. Silly example. I want to be thin. I want to eat a gallon of Haagen-Dazs. You feel those two things at the same time. You go sit there and tell me that your feelings and your experiences will ultimately dictate reality? When it comes to our relationship with God, this is where many of you are, and this is where I am. 
We allow our experiences and our feelings to dictate how we feel. So we say things like, well, I don't feel any different. Well, I don't feel, I don't experience it. And so therefore, whatever God says in truth and in reality really doesn't matter. And the problem with that is the scripture says over and over again, here's truth, here's reality of who you are in Christ. Here's who you are in Christ. Here's what God has done. Here's what you're capable of. The challenge for many of us for the next few weeks will be to come around this truth that when God says, the moment that we accept Christ, the moment of conversion, listen very carefully, because this is like the whole thing for where we're going. The moment that we become a Christian, the moment that Christ enters into our hearts, into our lives, listen, we don't become a better version of us. At that moment, we don't get, and here's the thing, an upgrade in terms of who we are. So it's like, here's Peter before he's a Christian. Here's Peter 2.0. When we become a Christian, the Bible says at the core, at the essence of who we are, we become a brand new what? Creation. Is that good news? The Bible says at the moment of conversion, we become a brand new creation. Not a better version of us, not a upgrade, but a brand new creation. Challenges, we go, but I don't feel like it. The challenge is, I don't act like it. Truth or how I feel and what I experience. The challenge, however, is that many of us are sitting here this morning and we go, there are besetting sins in our lives. We struggle with things. We struggle with anger, lust, greed, all kinds of things in us. And we'll go to that. I can't wait to get to chapter 7. Chapter 7 of Romans is a fun chapter, man. Okay? But there are these things within us. So how do we come around this reality and this truth that God says when we become a Christian, not a better version upgrade, a new you, a new creation... But how do we live this reality out knowing that there are sins and struggles that we continue to wrestle with? That's the journey. For anybody sitting here this morning and saying, I am this close to just chucking the whole Christian life thing because I feel like the biggest hypocrite. I feel like the biggest loser. I feel like the biggest sinner in the world. I have good news for you. This is where we're going. Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. By the way, if you're sitting there going, boy, I don't know, Peter. My issues right now are I'm really lonely. My issues right now is that uh, my marriage is in trouble. My issues right now is that I have these. Whatever your issues are, whatever your issues are, whatever your sin struggle is, I'm telling you right now, the fundamental root foundational thing is what we're talking about, Romans 6, 7, and 8. Okay? So if you're sitting there going, is this relevant? Is this applicable? I promise you it is relevant. It's applicable. Romans chapter 6, verse 1. Let's just jump right in. We're going to go verse by verse. What shall we say then, Paul says, shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? For five chapters, here's the background. For five chapters, here's essentially what Paul has said. Paul has said that Christianity is radically different from all other faiths, all other religions in the world in this critical sense. Salvation is received, not achieved. 
Salvation for a Christian is received. It's not achieved by immorality. It's not received. It's not achieved by obeying the law. It's not achieved by your might. It's not achieved by anything that you do. Salvation for a Christian is totally received. And whenever this radical counterintuitive message that salvation is totally a free gift that we receive, inevitably the question comes up. If uh, you're saved no matter what you do, then why live a good life? If you're saved no matter what you do, why care about how you live? If you're saved no matter what you do, why would you even care about changing yourself? Why care about the kind of change that you want to make in your life? Why, why, why care about any of that? And people say, if you truly embrace the message of salvation by grace, you'll stay as you are. Now, I've had some people, believe it or not, in our church who've come and said to me this. They said, you talk too much about the gospel and the gospel of grace. And the problem is, Pastor Peter, if you keep doing that, people are going to take sin lightly. Here's my problem with that fear. My problem with that fear is I have never to this day met anybody who truly understood the grace of God and didn't care about obeying him. I have never to this day met anybody. If you exist, please come and talk to me afterwards. Who truly understood the grace of God and said, what can I get away with? I have never met anybody who truly understood the grace of God and said, it doesn't matter how I live because God loves me anyway. If you do that, it shows that you do not understand yet the grace of God. Are you hearing me? Paul says it is impossible for someone to come to a true understanding of the gospel of grace and say, it doesn't matter how we live, God loves me anyway. That shows you do not understand the grace of God. The rest of the passage, the key, we're going to look at 14 verses today. Two words that Paul uses over again, I think we're going to put on the slides. First word is death or form of it, death. That word appears 14 times in 11 verses, if you're taking notes. 14 times in 11 verses. The second word that Paul uses over and over again is the word to know, to know, in verses 3, 6, and 9. And Paul says the understanding, verses 1 through 14, you have to do two things. You have to understand what it is that you're dead to. You have to understand what it is that you have to know. What is it you're dead to? What is it you have to know? Okay? Those are the two things. Here's the outline, if you're taking notes, about where we're going. Paul says, in order for you to experience this life transformation, first of all, you got to know something. Secondly, you have to count something. And third, you got to do something. Okay? Know something, count something, do something. Look at verse 2. Here we go. By no means, Paul says, to the question, can we go on sinning so that grace may increase? We died to sin. Everybody say, died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Paul says, if you're a Christian who's understand grace, you wouldn't say, well, doesn't matter how I live. Because why? He says, absolutely, positively not. Why? He says, you have died to sin. God has fundamentally changed your relationship to sin. We'll see this later. He goes, can a physically dead person sin? Yo, can a physically dead person, a corpse, can that body sin? Paul says, in the same way, how can someone who is spiritually dead to sin respond to sin? He says, God has fundamentally changed your relationship to sin. You are dead to sin. Now, real quick, guys. Some people, they believe that this whole, you can't live in sin, or you died to sin means that uh, now that we're Christians, we don't sin anymore. 
Um, is that true of anybody? Can you come and talk to me afterwards? Because I'd love to learn your secret. I don't know how you do that. That's not what Paul means, right? But what does Paul mean when he says, if you die to sin, you can't live in it any longer? Two things. Number one, he says, if you're truly dead to sin, there's going to grow in you a disgust and a hatred for that sin. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? How, how many, how, you and I, you know, you, you do that thing like, oh, oh, oh. Paul says, that's a healthy sign that you're dead to sin. If you're a Christian, there's a growing distaste and a disgust for that sin. Secondly, he says, if you're a Christian, there's some progress in that sin. Progress made in victory over the sin. So here's what Paul is saying. It's not saying that a Christian will never struggle with sin or never have virtual sins. He's saying, if you're a Christian, there's a level of disgust to that sin. And secondly, there's progress made in overcoming that sin. Otherwise, you're living in it. And Paul says, living in sin is incompatible with someone who is Christ in him. Verse 3. He says, or don't you know? You guys, if you have highlighter, underline, what, what's the first thing that Paul says? Paul doesn't say, and don't you do the first thing instruction. First instruction isn't to change this or that. Paul's first instruction is to know something. In other words, he's saying in life transformation, the first thing isn't to do something. He says it's to know, it's to remember, it's to remind ourselves of truth. Why? Ultimately, what you believe about God and about yourself will dictate how you live. I'm telling you right now, the way you and I live, you trail back, ultimately affected by how you see God and how you see God seeing you. They will determine how you and I live. That's why Paul says, first thing isn't to do. He says, oh, whoa, 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 whoa. don't you know what is it you should know? This is so huge, you guys. Look at what it says. Don't you know that all of us who are baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Verse 4. We were therefore buried with him through baptism and death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Verse 5. If we have been united with him like this in his death. Who's he talking about here? He's talking about the baptized. Who are the baptized? He's not talking about literal water baptism. He's talking, when he says baptized, the converted. He's talking about Christians. He's talking about you and me that are the Christ living in us. He's not talking about super Christians. He's not talking about pastors. He's talking about everyday, ordinary Christian when he says those who have been baptized. What does he say about them? He says, we have been, verse 5, united within. United. Underline. is a horticultural word. Horticultural word. That literally meant to be engrafted into the root. This is so powerful. Think of this imagery. Paul is saying our lives have been inserted into the very roots of Christ's life. At the moment of conversion, and I can only say this, I, I, need, I need you Holy Spirit, God right now, to make the truth alive. Paul says at the moment of conversion, you and I, engrafted and inserted, are so united and identified with Christ 
that everything that Christ went through, God looks at us and sees us, counts as everything that we went through. We are so identified with Christ. That means when Christ died, God looks at us and says, you died. When Christ was buried, God says, you were also buried. And God says, when Christ was resurrected from the dead, you were also what? Resurrected from the dead. God says, you are so identified with Christ. You and I are so identified with Christ that his past, his present, his future is our past, our present, and our future. Is that, did you hear what I said? When God sees us right now, he doesn't determine us. He doesn't look at us. He doesn't judge us. He doesn't see us with our past, our present, our future. He looks at us and he counts us. He looks at us and judges us based on Christ's past, Christ's present, and Christ's future. That means when God sees you right now, he sees you as if you were in Christ, dead to sin. You were raised with Christ in new resurrection and you were ascended to Christ in heaven. Holy cow. If this doesn't, if this truth doesn't, okay, okay. That's why we need to go. We need to go through this. First, we died to the penalty of sin. What does it mean that we've been identified with Christ? We died to the penalty of sin. When Christ died, he died to the penalty of sin. Everybody look up here, please. When Christ died for every sin, every evil, every injustice. Not in general. Some of us didn't go, yeah, Jesus died for all the sin, all the evil, injustice. And we think out there somewhere, Christ died for the sin in us. Christ died for the evil in us. Christ died for the injustice in us. And on the cross, when Jesus, when Jesus hung on the cross, for all the evil, injustice, and sin. The Bible says that God, our Father, poured out his justice, poured out his wrath on Jesus. And Jesus on the cross pays the penalty for our sins, past, present, and future. And God pours out his justice Jesus absorbs on himself the justice and the wrath of God so that the Bible says we are no longer under wrath but under mercy. You go, what what does that mean? What does it look like? Let me show you another verse. 2 Corinthians 5.19, Paul says, God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. The Bible says that God doesn't count our sins against us. So then who does God count our sins against? Verse 21, God made him who had no sin to be sin. God says for all the evil, injustice, and sin in us, God doesn't count those sins against us, but he counts those things on Christ so that God's justice, God's wrath, is forever turned away by a payment. But who pays that payment? You? Me? Who? And do you know what happens as a result of Jesus paying that payment? This right here is why I am a Christian and why you're a Christian. Look what the Bible says. 
so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And this is what came to be known as the great exchange of the glorious exchange. God the Father exchanges our corruption and our sin for Christ's righteousness and his perfection. So that we are made just or made righteous in God. That means as a result of Christ dying, when God the Father right now in heaven looks at you and looks at me, he literally says, there's no sin in that man. He literally says, there is no sin in that woman. When God the Father looks at you and me today, despite what we did last night, despite what we did last week, when God the Father sees us, God says, I see right now a man or woman who is blameless, pure, spotless, without sin. Holy cow. Can I get an amen? See, you don't believe it. You know why? I don't feel it. I don't think like it. I don't act like it. With, excuse me, it doesn't matter. When God the Father right now, the perfect, holy, righteous God, sees you and sees me, he literally says, you know what I see? I see a man without any sin, without any blemish, without it. I see a woman without, that's how God sees us. Why? Because Christ died. Do you know how different our lives would be if we, if we believe this? By the way, can I, there's nothing about you and nothing about me in there, does it? About our moral effort? About our good behavior? So don't walk with the swagger. Don't walk with the swagger. Do you know what I'm saying? Don't walk around like you're all that and then some. Listen, a self-righteous Christian can't grow in the same dish. Arrogant Christian can't grow in the same dish. Prideful, looking down at other people, Christian, can't grow in the same. Why? Because there's nothing that we did to stand before God, holy, blameless, righteous, pure, without sin. All the work of God. He makes us blameless, pure, holy, righteous. Is that good news? Do you know how different our lives would be? Let me give you an example how we don't believe this. We don't believe it. Do you know why? Because many of us walk around right now feeling condemnation and guilt. We think any minute God's just going to go, I'm going to whoop you. We think for some of or that was my generation. For some of us, it's, I'm going to put you in timeout. Go in the corner. Go in the corner. Timeout. Timeout. So we're like in the corner. Okay, God. Am I? Am I? We think any minute. Why? Because you and I think we can do something to be under condemnation, under guilt again. And God says, you don't understand. When Christ died, past, present, future, paid it all. Nothing you can do ever to change how God sees you. Holy God. You don't believe it, though. I don't believe it. Let me show you why. See, when somebody says, uh, look, if we're saved no matter what, then what incentive is there to live a good life? There's a hidden premise in that question. You know what the hidden premise is? The hidden premise is, if the fear of condemnation and rejection is taken away, why would I want to live a good life? But here's the problem with that. If one's fear of condemnation and rejection is taken away, 
and you no longer want to live a whole life, the only motivation you ever had was what? Fear of condemnation or rejection. And that will never change you. Do you know why? Because that fear is selfish, man. It's selfish to the core, man. Do you know what I'm talking about? I'm going to behave. Why? Well, I don't want to get punished. I don't want to get condemned. I don't want to look bad. I don't want my reputation to be tarnished. I don't want to be a bad husband. I don't want to be a... Hello, it's me, 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 me. It's I, 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 I. And that will never transform you. You know what will transform you? Gospel of grace comes, and here's what happens to motivation. The motivation no longer is about you. If I do something bad, God will punish me. God will reject me. God will abandon me. The motivation becomes, I have somebody who paid that so that I will be never abandoned, never rejected. Why would I do this and hurt and disappoint the one who says he will never leave me and never forsake me? See how that motivation changes. Peter, why do you, want, why do you not want to cheat on your wife? Why do I want to be faithful? Well, because if I cheat on my wife, I'll be a bad pastor. If I cheat on my wife, my reputation will be ruined. If I cheat on that will never keep me. Do you know what will keep me? Why would I do that to somebody who unconditionally loves me? Who unconditionally accepts me. Who in her promise of promises said, no matter what I do, I will never leave you or forsake you. Do you know why many of us aren't changing? Your motivation to change is fear. And the love and grace of God has not exploded like a bomb. When you get to a point where you go, why would I want to do that? And betray and disappoint the one who will never leave me. You know what else? When motivation is fear, you know what else? You don't trust a person, do you? Why? Because there's deep insecurity. Can you trust somebody that you feel insecure around? Church, answer. <laughs> it's hard to trust somebody you feel insecure around, right? If I do, if I, oh, 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 there's no, you're insecure. You can't trust that person. Precisely. Do you know why your relationship with God is always hitting a ceiling in terms of intimacy? How can you be intimate with somebody that you do not trust? And how can you trust somebody when you feel totally insecure about where you stand with him today? Heart surgery, people, this morning. Heart surgery. What is your motivation? I don't want to go into timeout. I don't want him to. Or, he loves me like that! He loves me like that. Why would I do this? And disappoint my beloved. See, this is the reason why you go, I, I think I, I trust God. No, you don't. You know why? Because when suffering comes, why do you always think the worst of God? He's punishing me or I'm angry at you. Why? You don't trust and believe that he loves you unstoppably, infallibly, unconditionally. Because if you did, is this making any sense? So can I ask you a question? 
What's your love motivation for Jesus? Or, There's a lot in there, isn't there? He died to sin. We died to sin. You don't really believe it. Because if you did, you would be free. <laughs> you want to see freedom, unconditional love? Come hang out my house. Watch my kids. Watch my kids. Oh, man. Parker, Sophie, Noah. They know their daddy loves unconditionally. There's no fear. There's no fear. There's no fear. There's no fear. That's freedom. God so longs for that for his kids. Instead of walking on eggshells, X's and O's, got the... Who wants to be free? You were born with a longing to be free. It's the cry of your soul. It's not some conceptual theology as a church. It's got tons back in it. Verse 5, let's keep going. So if we've been united with him like this in his death, we will also certainly be united with him in his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with. By the way, that's an unfortunate translation right there because in the original, it says nothing about like your body of sin like doing away with or destroying. It literally says your body of sin, we'll talk about this more next week, literally your body of sin is rendered powerless or the teeth has been pulled out of or declawed. Done away with so that we should no longer be slaves to sin, verse 7, because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. There's a second truth. Come around. We died to the power of sin. Verse 6 introduces a new concept. I want to have fun with this. The Bible says there's two selves in all of us, right? There's the old self and there's a new self, or the way we will use. There's the old you and the new you. In the Greek, it literally says old man, okay? New you. So there's the, the old you, who you were before coming to Christ, and there's the new you after conversion. And here's what Paul says. The old you... Literally, he says, the old you with his habits, attitudes, goals, motivations, thoughts, desires, hopes, the old you that was a slave to sin, the old you that was an enemy of God. Paul says emphatically here, he, when he says, you know, he says, you know this already. That old you died. But I don't feel. <laughs> the old you, Paul says, has been crucified. And last time I checked grammar, that's in the past tense, Yes? Not is dying, the old you. In other words, that there's two selves. Paul says the old you that's a slave to sin, that's a, that, that is old habits, old addictions, old desires, old thoughts, that old you was dealt a decisive death blow the moment that Christ came into your life. So even though the new you is still in the body of sin, we'll talk about that, and we're still capable of sinning, still struggling with temptation, Paul says emphatically, you know this, the new you is no longer a slave to sin. The new you, sin has no authority over you. The new you is no longer the rule and reign of sin. The new you has been set free from the control of sin. The new you. But I don't feel... We'll continue to talk about this during the series. And you go, well, how do I know that happened? Here's how you know that happened. Ready? Ready? Next slide. 
I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. That's I of the old self, but Christ lives in me. Next verse, 2 Corinthians. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. How do you know that this really happened and what does it look like? It's the next word. It's an old familiar word. I want to introduce you again. Brief review. Word? Palingenesia. Carlton, you know what I realized this week as I was, we need, we, need to, we need to write a song called Palingenesia. Yes. Okay. We need to write a song, Palingenesia. I, I've, got, I've got some tunes in my head, just the chorus part. Palingenesia. Okay. I got some tunes. No, 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 no. We're not going to try it right now. I don't embarrass myself. For those of you going, Palingenesia, what the heck is that? And how does that have anything to do with what you're talking about today? Here it is, two-minute version. Ready? Church, ready? Palingenesia. Some of you guys can preach this part. You've heard it so many times. Matthew chapter 19, verse 28. What does Jesus say? He says, next, uh, next slide, please. Truly, I tell you, at the, here's the word, renewal, palingenesia, of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne. The Bible says, Jesus declared this, the Bible says, what, here's what the Greeks believed. The Greeks believed that the entire created order was constantly heading towards disarray and decay. That the universe, the history was constantly going towards disarray and this decay. And so once in a while, there's this universal cosmic fire that descended on earth and cleansed and purged everything. The Greeks believed. That because history was cyclical and not linear, that this process happened over and over again. Things would get really bad, things would get dirty, things would get just horrible, and then the fire would come, cleanse everything, and everything would be remade, reborn. That's what Jesus thought. Jesus uses that word that was very familiar, and he says, I'm not talking about multiple renewals. He said, there's one time, the palingenesia, when the entire cosmos, all created order, will be cleansed and renewed with fire. What fire could have the power to do that? Jesus says, when I sit on the throne. Now, that alone is pretty cool. Like, whoa, Jesus is on the cross. That word appears one other time in the entire New Testament. Guess where it appears? Titus 3, 5, and 6. Ooh. Here's what Titus 3, 5, 6 says. He saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and palingenesia by the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us genuinely through Jesus Christ our Savior. The cosmic, I'm going to get there. The cosmic fire that is going to renew and restore all things. That power, that person is now Coming where? Into us. At the moment of conversion. The cosmic cleansing, renewing, restoring, rebirth, fire that is able to restore all things, Jesus says, that Kingdom power is right now coming into the heart, soul, life, and body of that person who says, Jesus Christ is Lord. Is that amazing? You don't believe it, though. You know how I know you don't believe it? Because we have small ambitions. Why do you want to be a Christian? Oh, I want some inner peace. 
Why do you want to be a Christian? Oh, you know, I want to be able to fight some temptation. Why do you be a Christian? I want to quit smoking. Do you have any idea what happened to you? The cosmic, cosmic power, person, Holy Spirit, renewing, restoring, rebirthing. This is the reason why the Bible says when you become a Christian, you are what? Born again. Y'all got to help me out here. Is this amazing news? <laughs> I became a Christian. Warm fuzzies, warm fuzzies. Oh, I feel so good about it. The cosmic fire that is going to restore, renew the fire, power, spirit that came into the dead body of Jesus and said, live. It's the same thing that came into your and my spiritually dead bodies and said, Live. Are you going to tell me your old you is going to have a chance against that? It's not even a fair fight. It's not even a fair. Don't give yourself too much credit. Well, you know, my old self is pretty strong. I got some pretty strong addictions. I got some pretty. You do not have a chance against the Pelagenesia move of God. Can I get an amen? Here's how you and I know we minimize this. C.S. Lewis, I love him, said it best. Listen to what he said. He said, the com- listen carefully. The command, be perfect, is not idealistic gas. Nor is it a command to do the impossible. You guys know, be perfect, therefore as I'm perfect. God is going to make us into creatures that can obey that command to be perfect. Whoo! If we let him, for we can prevent him if we choose. God will make the feeblest and filthiest among us into a dazzling, radiant, immortal creature pulsating all through with such energy and joy and wisdom and love as we cannot now imagine. A bright, stainless mirror which reflects back to God perfectly his own boundless power and delight and goodness. The process will be long and in parts very painful, but that is what we are in for, nothing less. He meant what he said. Get rid of your goals. Get rid of all your goals. You want to have such small ambitions. This is the reason why when somebody says, well, if I'm saved, you know, do I have to live? You have no idea what happened to you. Well, if I'm saved by Christ, can I? You have no clue what happened to you. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Someone who's encountered and experienced palangiasia, your goals and ambitions are too small. Anticipate that you will not be able to anticipate the magnitude of what God is going to do in your life. I'm telling you, I've been praying for you all week, and I'm praying even during the sermon, because for many of us right now, it's I don't feel it, I don't experience it, it's not true of me. (laughs) Yeah, that's exactly what you sound like. (laughs) We're like, I don't feel it, it's not me, me, what is me? That's what I sound like. St. Augustine, Confessions, read that book, Confessions, St. Augustine. St. Augustine had a voracious sexual appetite, let's just say, okay? St. Augustine, one of the most famous early Christians, okay? One day, after he encountered God, became a follower of Jesus, was walking down the street, and one of his, you know, ladies, like, woohoo, Augustine, woohoo. Why is that funny? 
that's, that's, what it, you know, that's how it's painted. Oh, Augustine. And Augustine just kind of ignored, walked along, walked along. Next day, Augustine walking down. Woohoo, Augustine. Over here, Augustine. So finally, the third day, she's a little worked up. Stops Augustine and says, Augustine, it is I. To which Augustine replied, I know, but it is not I. Augustine, it's me. Augustine, I know, but it's not me. See, I used to be the kind of person that needed female affection and companionship, and it wasn't even about love. I used you to fill a black, empty hole. But that me died with Jesus. I used to be somebody under smallest criticism <laughs> because people's approval of me meant everything. But that me I know, but it is not I. Do you know this truth? Do you know this truth? Let's wrap up. Verse 8. Now if we die with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Verse 9. For we know, there is it again, since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. They were saying that death he died. He died to sin once and for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. And starting in verse 11, Paul does something very common to his style of writing. He basically says, here's what God has done for us. And here's now what we need to do for God. The problem is, for many of us, we begin with what? Here's what we need to do for God. Can I just tell you something? Have you noticed the way Paul writes? He says, here's who God is. Here's what God has done. Amen. Now here's what you need to do. Many of us don't read their Bibles that way. If I were to just uh, volunteer somebody say, how many of you highlight your Bibles? Can I have your Bible? I guarantee you. When I get your Bible, your highlighted parts are, do this, do not do that, avoid that, do not do this. Anybody want to volunteer their Bibles? Nobody underlines the first three chapters of Ephesians of who God is and what he has done. Paul says, imperatives, that is what you need to do. Apart from indicatives, that is what God has done, become impossibilities. You cannot ever pull off what God asks you to do unless you recognize and realize what it is that God has done. So Paul says, here's what God has done. Here's what God has done. Do you not know? Do you not know? Do you not know? Now here's what you need to do. And even what you need to do, he says, is interesting. Verse 11, ready? In the same way, count. Everybody say count. Count. Everybody say count. Count yourselves. It's an accounting term. Dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Paul says, like many of us, it's not enough just to know something. How many of us know stuff? that have absolutely no effect in our lives. How many of us, I'm going to ask again, know stuff that has no effect in our lives? Okay. How many of us are liars and cowards? Okay, maybe open. The reality is many of us know stuff. It doesn't change. And here's what Paul says. He says it's not just enough to know. He says you have to count. That is appropriate. And we're going to talk more about that next week. He says being dead to sin. Here's what Paul is saying. It's like a privilege or a legal right. A privilege or a legal right. Being dead to sin is true, but it's like a privilege or a legal right. It may be true, it may be enforced, but you have to appropriate it. Some of you guys have a trust fund in your name, but you're broke. 
You don't have to be broke. You have a trust fund in your name. But until you appropriate the trust fund that's available to you, that's why you use the accounting term. That money is no good. And Paul's saying, it's not enough that you've got this amazing blessing. You're dead to sin. Sin has no effect on you, but you have to appropriate it in faith. Now, we're going to talk more about that next week. Verse 12. Check this out. We're going to end here. Almost done here. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. Let me just plainly tell you what Paul is saying. He says, here's what many of us do. When we're tempted to sin, we think it's us against God. God wants me to do this, but I really want to do this. God wants me to do this, but I really want. Anybody know what that's like, this inner battle? Here's what Paul's saying. Paul's saying that battle that you think in reality is not really happening. Why? There's only one you, the new you. The old body of sin, oh, it's still there. It can still tempt and call. But here it says, here's what he says. He says the old you, the old self, has been crucified. It's dead. You're no longer under the rule and reign of it. You don't have to obey his desires. You don't have to go, woo when it comes calling. You don't have to do that. But what do we do? We go, but there's this fierce inner battle. And God says, no, 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 no. The enemy wants you to think there's a fierce battle. The enemy wants you to think you have no choice. How many know what this is like? But I feel... The enemy wants you to believe, oh, no, 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 that still has influence and power over you. And Paul says, you don't understand. The chain has been cut. I'll tell you why you and I don't believe that. We say stuff like this. I have an anger problem. How many of you guys? That was both a confession and example, by the way. <laughs> it wasn't even planned. It came out. I have an anger problem. Okay, now here's the thing. We say that. Or, I tend to be a lustful person. We say that. If we're not careful, here's what we do. You identify yourself with the sin of anger and say, that's me, that's who I am. Identify yourself with the sin of lust, that's me, that's who I am. And Paul says, that's dangerous. So here's what he says. He says, treat sin, listen carefully, like a separate entity. It's not a part of you. Separate entity. What do I mean? Sin comes along and says, can I borrow your mouth? Sure, you can borrow my mouth. Thanks. Gossip, slander, speak ill of people, rah, 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 complain, all kinds of things. Comes back and says, Sin says, Thank you very much for letting me use your mouth. You're welcome. Sin comes along and says, Hey, hey, can I borrow your eyes? Sure. Have them all weekend. Thanks. Can I borrow your mind? Are you tracking with me? Can I borrow your mind? Sure, you could have my mind. Sin, sin, Bible says, sin, which is separate from you, uses your body to express its desire. Some of you and I, because we don't believe this, it's like all the parts of our bodies, like free reign. Sin says, hey, can I borrow your hand? Sure. Can I borrow your feet? Sure. And here's the thing, sin, sin comes along and says, you don't have a choice, man. Come on, identify with me. You know you're still the same person. And Paul is literally saying, you do not have to offer your bodies as instruments of wickedness. Here's what I do. Can I just practice an example? Treating sin separately. So it's getting up in the morning and going, God, you know I have a problem with my mouth. God, take my mouth. 
and instead of using it as an instrument of wickedness to do all kinds of things that will destroy the body of Christ and harm others, use it as an instrument of peace and of righteousness and bring glory to you. God, you know that my eyes can be used as instruments of wickedness. God, use my eyes for the sake of your glory, for the sake of your kingdom. The moment that you walk out here, some of you, sin's going to come and go, you don't believe all that crap that he said, do you? <laughs> Let me borrow your mouth. Sure. Here's. We'll talk more about this next week, about what this looks like when it's fleshed out. Let's get the last word, shall we? For sin shall not be your master, because you are not under law, but under grace. And as I always do, church, Paul says, go to the gospel. God, I love the gospel. I love Jesus. Go to the gospel. Look what Paul says in Ephesians 2, 5. It says, God made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace. Everybody say grace. Grace. Say with grace. Grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Oh, what does it mean? What does it mean? Imagine a person who's become rich. How did he become rich? By working really, really hard and by diligence. And then that person gets married. How do all those riches come to his or her spouse? Legal union. You know what that is? Grace. God says you've been identified with Christ. Everything that is true of Christ is true of who? And the Bible says that Jesus stands at the right hand of the Father. You know what the right hand of the Father represents, you guys? Right hand of the Father is to place a position of what? Glory and honor. It's the place where the prime minister stood. It's the place where the conquering general coming from victory and war stood. And God is literally saying, that's where my son stands. It's a place of honor. Why? Why? Look, 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 look at what he's done. Look at the accomplishment. Look at his works. Look at his ministry. Look at his sacrifice. Look at the glory of what he's done. And God literally says, all of that becomes yours. By effort? No. By trying? No. By what? Legal union. Called So when the Bible says, when God sees you, he sees you as his son, Jesus. Do you know what that means? God the Father looks at you and says, you're beautiful. I don't feel beautiful. I know. You have the beauty of Jesus. Uh, I, I, uh, I, don't, I, don't, I don't feel righteous. I know. But you know what? I see you right now. Righteous is my son. I've done a lot of things that people could blame me for. I know. But right now as I see you, Blameless. God, I'm a sinner, and I sin. I know. When I look at my son, I see perfect righteousness. And so when I see you, perfect righteousness. You say, you go, oh, Peter, I know all this. You don't. Do you know why? If you did, your life and my life would be radically different let me end with this when you're married to somebody 
Carlton, you can come on up, bro. My wife and I did this. I love you, Jenny. And your wife will go, girlfriends will go, why do you love me? And when I was young and stupid, I actually, I'm kind of stupid now, old and stupid. You know what you do? You go, I love you because you're so smart. You're so beautiful, so talented. You're so, and you list a number of things. And you think you're doing them a favor. But you know what you do? When you say, I love you because, that person begins to what? Find their identity, validation, significance in that thing that they think they're loved for. You sitting here, and you know why I'm transformed? Because you look at God and you go, God, why do you love me? You know what God's little answer is? I love you just because I love you. No, 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 no. Why do you love me? I love you just because I love you. But I haven't done, that's the point. The journey for the rest of this series, my prayer has been that that truth will snap in your heart and in my heart because my life will look totally different if this was true and real to me. Here's what I want to do this morning. I know it's the first sermon, it's the introduction, but how many of you guys are sitting here right now and going, Peter, from where I'm at to like believing that, bro, there's like a a Grand Canyon gulf and I'm going to need a miracle from God to like narrow that bridge to come to believing this is that how many if that's you will you stand with me because that's me this journey is me I'm preaching to myself and I want to pray for us this morning as we begin this journey anybody church we begin this journey today to the question so Peter we're made new what do we do about this old body of sin? What do we do about the temptation and struggles I face? What about the areas in my life that need transformation? That's where we're going next week. And yet, God, I just pray right now, especially to those of my brothers and sisters who are held captive to the disastrous, destructive lie that has anybody believing today that they're not different, that they're the same, that they're not a new creation, that there's no hope for them. There's hope for others, but not for you. There's forgiveness to others, but not for you. Change is possible for others, but not for you. For anybody that is held captive to that lie, in the name of Jesus, I pray that you, Holy Spirit, would break through that lie and that you would speak that you would set them free, God, from captivity to that lie. And for anybody in here that says, I don't want to know the rest, I don't want to hear the rest, I like where I am, oh, Spirit of God, do only what you can do. Convict them of sin and righteousness. Convict them of sin and righteousness. For anybody who says, How can God love me? How can God accept me? How can God forgive me? Remind them 
that there is now, not ever, not forevermore condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. They are loved infallibly, unstoppably, unconditionally. Father and the Son 